0: All right, we'll be in the book of Esther. Well, we had a good anniversary days. We celebrated 43 years as a church. Officially, that happened yesterday. I'd like to thank all who were involved to make that happen. I know there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to pull off Such an event, and I thank you for it. I thank you also for those who attended. Amen. We had some bad weather to start. That's always fun. Um, Unfortunately, the bad roads caused some of the preachers that were scheduled to be with us to have to cancel, but that's the risk you take of hosting a meeting in November in South Dakota. Pastor would ask me, Is there anything I could have done differently? Yes. You could have founded the church on like July 1st or something. (laughs) Um, But I got to be careful. He promised to come back and haunt me if I do anything wrong. And as much as I enjoy our anniversary days or Jubilee, if you will, um, I have to admit I'm always glad when it's in the rearview mirror afterwards because I know that it's a chance for our church to just kind of take a deep breath. And maybe that's not true for everybody, but I know for, for some of us from about, I don't know, mid-February for nine months straight, it feels like it's nonstop. And so it's good to just kind of get a break here in the calendar for a minute, because um, it'll be full speed ahead come Sweetheart Banquet for us, and at least those that are involved in the planning and the execution and all of that. Um, ladies retreat in March, missions conference in April. Memorial Day picnic in May, men and boys camp out in June, God in Country Rally in July, Silver State in July, VBS sometime in the summer, family camp in September, youth rally in October, and finally our church's anniversary in November. So I'm not complaining, trust me. I am glad to be in a church that's in action, that's doing something. I don't want to do something just for the sake of doing something, but I'm, I'm glad we're doing something. And uh, so that is a blessing, but... It does feel like non-stop busyness for about nine months. One of these days, I'll make it a habit for us to go out of town afterwards. (laughs) One of these days will never come, amen. Um, So with our our anniversary behind us as a church, it's time to get back to our routine. And listen, there's nothing wrong with a routine. (laughs) So long as you have a good, godly routine, that's a good thing. I encourage all of you to have a routine. Uh, Meet with the Lord every day. That'd be a good way to start. Um, So, on Wednesday nights, this means the book of Esther, and we begin a new chapter tonight. We'll be in Esther chapter 5, but before we read this chapter, I want to remind you where we are at in context, so you can kind of remember what's going on. Haman has issued the decree for all the Jews to be exterminated. That is set to take place in 11 months. And remember, Haman did this because he's mad at Mordecai. Because of one man's action, and he he wants to take out an entire uh, group of people. And this is so over the top that we're meant to see Satan's hand in all of this to realize that something greater is at work here than just one man hating another man. This is Satan behind the scene because at this point, he wants to prevent the Messiah from arriving. He is to arrive to the tribe of Judah, so let's take out the tribe of Judah. And that's what he's after here. But anyway... Upon learning of this decree, we know Mordecai, he rent his clothes, he put on sackcloth with ashes, he goes in the middle of the city and he cries out with a loud and bitter cry and he goes to the king's gate and he does the same there. He, he can't go through the gate or really get at the gate, but he's, he's there uh, near it. And Esther learns of this and then she finds out that this decree has been issued. And so Mordecai tells Esther, hey, you need to go in before the king and do something about this. She's like, I can't just go in before the king. He could kill me. I can't just go in unbidden. This is her, this is her husband. Even. <clears throat> I mean, she just can't come in and, and say, hey, what's up, man? Can I talk to you for a minute? Um, she could be killed. And so she tells him not to mention, it's been 30 days since I've been called into his presence and so she feels she's out of favor with the king on top of all of this well Mordecai tells her don't think you're going to escape being in the king's house more than any of the other Jews you're you're going to lose your life don't think the crown's going to save the head and he gives her the encouragement the admonishment whatever you want to call it who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this you know God has us where we're at for such a time as this and so we need to remember that. And upon hearing that, Esther tells, um, Esther tells Mordecai, I gather all the Jews in Shushan, fast for me for three days, eat nothing, drink nothing, and I and my maidens will also fast, and I will go in unto the king. And she famously said, and if I perish, I perish. We took last time to talk about the importance of fasting in the life of the believer Won't go into all that again. If you want to listen to that, please go back and check that out. But what's interesting in this account is that there still is not any mention of God, there's not even a mention of prayer. And we know that the Jews who remained in Persia are living outside of the will of God because they should have returned to the land when Cyrus issued the decree that they could return and rebuild the city and the sanctuary, but they didn't, uh, many of them didn't do that. In fact, uh, somewhere around fifty to 60,000 returned, and that was it. And so we're left to wonder at this point if these are so far away from God that this fasting is nothing more than a religious exercise. Kind of like church is for some people. You know, just going through the motions. Many religions believe in fasting. But they're not getting a hold of God. you got to have a relationship with God. And and we don't know what's going on here in the text. We aren't told. And I have wrestled with what's going on here, wanting to know myself. And I don't have a satisfactory answer for my liking. You may have one. I don't. Um, We know people can just go through motions. I don't know if that's the case here with these Jews that are living in Persia. Remember, God had said to backslidden Israel over in Jeremiah fourteen twelve, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. We don't know if that's the condition of them here. Um, it certainly is a bad condition. Maybe God has brought this circumstance into their, their world and now it is so desperate that the Jews are realizing they have nowhere else to turn. And so now they're fasting for God's intervention perhaps. So are they afflicting themselves to show God how serious they are about their desperate situation, or is this nothing more than a show? Well, we're not ever really told dogmatically, and I've heard preachers on both sides give good arguments for their reasons, and it's interesting how far apart the opinions are in this book, and I guess that's true in a lot of things, but I hate to be a politician tonight, but I'm not ready to make a declaration yet. So right now, I'm for fracking. After the election, I may not be for fracking. Okay? If you don't know what that has to do with it, just forget it. All right. You might have to live in Pennsylvania for that to be relevant. Let's begin tonight. Let's read chapter 5. Now, it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house, and the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. Now, if you can draw that and figure that out for me, that'd be great. Um, That's a lot right there. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, what wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom." And Esther answered, If it seemed good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day into the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends, and Zeresh his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches, and the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the queen unto the banquet, but Uh, that she had prepared, but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then says Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman... And he caused the gallows to be made. <laughs> Obviously, if you know where this is going, this is one of those oops moments. right? Oops. Well, this chapter opens here. It's the third day of the requested fast. And it is now time for action. There's a time for fasting to be separate for prayer. And there's a time... For action, I want to give you a side note here, but it's interesting in our Bible how there are times when God essentially says, stop praying and get to action. Doesn't that sound squirrely? Remember when the children of Israel entered the land, they had conquered Jericho, a mighty city. God had an unusual military strategy for them. But they defeated the city by following God's orders. And they come to the next city of of Ai, a little city. They sent 3,000 men against Ai, and they lost 36 in battle, and Ai caused them to run away. Little did they know, Achan, while in Jericho, had taken spoils from there, and God said, don't do it. In fact, it was called the accursed thing. We don't know who all would have known, but we know Achan knew. And Joseph, he falls on his face. It says this in Joshua 7, 6-9, through 9, and, and Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads." And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we would have been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us around and Cut off our name from the earth, and what wilt Thou do unto Thy great name? Do you remember God's response? What He said to Joshua in Joshua 7.10? The Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Get thee up. Wherefore liest Thou thus upon Thy face? I thought this is the action I should have taken. God's essentially saying to Joshua, you losing the battle against Ai wasn't my fault. So why are you coming to me? about? I didn't do it. I told you you were going to conquer the land. I told you I'd give you the land. And if it's not happening, it's not my fault. I've already told you you got victory. Something must be wrong on your end. And so he tells them to sanctify the camp. Long story short, they work it all out. <laughs> but God was letting him know This is a time for action. Get up. Get to doing something. The problem isn't with me, God is saying. What I'm getting at is there's things in the Bible we are promised that you don't necessarily have to sit there and pray over and fast over and get all worked up over. God's already said you have the victory. Now go and get it and stop looking to me. I've already given it to you. And if you're not experiencing that, Something's wrong on your end, not mine. In Exodus, when the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, and it looks hopeless. They're hemmed in, Pharaoh's army's bearing down. And we read in Exodus 14, 15, The Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou to me? Now, it's a prayer not recorded in the Bible. It's really interesting how that flows But evidently, Moses went to God in prayer. And God says to Moses, Why why are you crying unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. I've already provided the way. I told you you're coming out. How about in King Saul's day when he didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites? He didn't destroy the animals either, and he was supposed to. And so Saul attempted to perform a religious exercise and give an offering, and save the king alive, and all these things. 1 Samuel 15, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Well, from that event, God rejected Saul as king. And he says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 1, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Quit sulking. Get up and go. I find these verses very interesting. And and I highlight these to show you there are times when God isn't needing us to spend more time in our prayer closet. But rather, God is wanting us to spend more time doing. Now, you can always be in an attitude of prayer and therefore fulfill praying without ceasing. That's a whole other thing. But there's there's a time to go in the prayer closet and there's a time to be in action. And if our prayer is not leading us into action, then what are we doing? There's a time to stand still and let God move. And there's a time when we need to arise and go forward. But you can't use prayer as the excuse for why you aren't doing anything for God yet. I'm sure Adrian knows why I'm saying this, but we had a fellow here that he always was saying to me that he's praying about it. He always said he wanted God to move. I'm just standing still and I'm going to let God move. Time went on and I eventually politely, friendly Pastor What's the word? Pastor Lee? Pastor Lily. Um however many adverbs are in there. I is that even an adverb? Yeah, I, I don't look, I don't know the English language, okay? Tyler will know, amen. Um, I've heard him speak before. <laughs> I, I was polite and I was tactful and, and, and I told him, um, you know, at some point you gotta act. And he never did. He just kept standing still. I'm waiting for God to move. Well, he waited till he's no longer in the church. And last I heard, he's not anywhere. Doing nothing. Let me throw this out there before somebody gets upset. Don't misunderstand me. There is most definitely a time for prayer. But there is also most definitely a time for action. For example, we could pray about a large facility indefinitely. But eventually, we got to do something. Yeah. Remember that David couldn't build the temple. He wanted to. God said, you're a man of war. You've shed too much blood. I, I don't want you to build it. I want your son Solomon to build it. And so David began to collect materials. And he charged Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22, 16. Listen to this. Arise, therefore, and be doing. And the Lord be with thee. Get up. Get to work, and the Lord will be with you. So are you one who still isn't doing anything because you're still praying about it? Now, that's okay in some context. Amen. But there should come a point when you're not just a hearer of the Word, but you're a doer of the Word. And in our text here, the time of fasting has now come to an end, which means it is now time for action. They can't stay on their faces for 11 months. God uses people. They can't just hope that everything's going to turn out favorably, but they have to get up and get going. Just popped in my head, but you know, God didn't begin to part the, or stay the Jordan back till the, the foot of the priest hit the brim of the water. They had to arise and go. And so here we are. Now it came to pass... On the third day, the time has come. The time has come for action. And we see that Esther put on her royal, her royal apparel. She may have been wearing clothes that would symbolize she was in some sort of, of fasting mode. <laughs> um, she would have put those off in favor of her royal apparel, knowing there were certain protocols to follow when you go in before the king. And, of course, she probably didn't wear her royal apparel all the time. You know, spoiler alert, I don't wear a suit all the time. (laughs) The putting on of her royal apparel to go in before the king was the right thing to do. It was proper. It was appropriate for the occasion. She should appear in a manner becoming of her person and her exalted position within the empire while in public and before the king While he's on the throne. Some of you might be getting nervous. Oh boy, are we about to start talking about clothing? Yes. (laughs) We are. I'm not going to get crazy here, but I do want to take advantage of being in this text. And I'll mention to you tonight that clothing is important to God and man. We know it's important to God. So how do we know that? first thing God did after sin entered the world, at least one of the first things, is He clothed them. After we're saved, God takes away the clothing of our filthy self-righteousness and He robes us in Christ's righteousness. And we learn in the Revelation we'll be clothed in white raiment. God had very spe- specific requirements for the high priest. While under the old covenant, the garments, we, we might even say it was a very elaborate Requirement. Did you know that God also told the children of Israel, I want you to put a ribbon of blue around the fringes of your garments? Clothing's a pretty big deal to God is what I'm saying. But clothing is also important in the sight of man. And I know someone's going to mention 1 Samuel sixteen seven, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And to that I say exactly. Man cannot see your heart. But they can see your appearance. And they will make a judgment based upon what they see, like it or lump it. Imagine two people going in for an interview. One is just disheveled in a mess, unkept. And the other is presentable and clean. Who do you think is going to make the better first impression? Why? Because man looks on in the outward appearance. I would imagine there's a good chance if you're called to stand before a high-ranking official, like a military commander, a governor, a president, that you're probably not going to do so in your stained, grass-cutting clothes. I would think you're going to clean yourself up. You're probably going to wear some of your best clothing or your best uniform. And you probably do that not necessarily because you respect the person, but you do respect their office. You're recognizing who you're standing before while in their office. For this reason, I, I personally think there is something to be said for wearing our best to the church house. On, especially on Sundays. I, I Look, I get Wednesday nights a lot of us are coming from work. Amen. I, I get it. Um, where I grew up, though, just to let you know where my heart's at, your best may just be two sets of overalls and you wear the nicer of the two to church. I mean, you do what you can with what you have. You know, it wasn't that long ago that two sets of clothes was all people had. Yeah. Right. And really, you rotated them. You had a, a worse one you wore on the, out in the field. You had a nicer one you wore to church. And when the other one got bad, you rotated it back and you bought a new one to replace the And you just rotated two sets of clothes. That's it. Um, really, the problem, the desire to buy a house for bigger closets didn't. You know, that's like the last 70-year thing. <laughs> I can remember when I was growing like a weed, my parents weren't going to waste money on a bunch of clothes. <laughs> How many of you raised kids, right? I mean, Adrian bought a pair for Levi, and I thought, what in the world? It looks like he's waiting for the flood. She's like, I just bought him. Go get him another one. The boy looks like a dork. <laughs> but you do the best you can with what you have, amen? It's funny how I, you know, when they were little, you could just go to a used store and find whatever you want for like a quarter. Those were the days. You know, I always thought kids are going to get less expensive as they get older. They get more expensive. All right, that's a whole other thing. Oh, man. But, you know, now, instead of just two pairs and that's it, you know, we have closets and dressers and chest of drawers full of nothing to wear every Sunday. <laughs> Look, my point is your best doesn't have to be a three-piece suit. That's not my point. The best is the best you have. The best you can do. God knows your heart. But I do believe we should treat our, our, our Sunday gatherings like it's a big deal. We're, we're coming in here before our king. That's what she's doing here. She puts on her royal apparel. And we're coming before our king and we should take it seriously and do our best. And that includes our dress. Somebody will ask you, what you all dressed up for? I'm going to the king's house. Whoop. Why are they asking you that? Because they're taking note. This isn't normal. Now, listen, we're going to welcome anybody who wants to come in here, okay? I hope you know my heart. Um, look, they want to come hear me preach. I get it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm, I'm only teasing, I'm trying to lighten up the, the tension. But I hope you understand. There's a reason we have a ministry standard. When you're here and back, um, it's not because I wanted to come up with something to just be cantankerous. Say, boy, if I could get Breck mad at me, I'm gonna. It's this right here. Let's yeah, we're gonna pick on Breck tonight. He's a soccer player. It's 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 okay. <laughs> I come up with that because I believe we are ministering before. And in the stead of God. That's a big deal. There's a reason I don't dress casually when I get up here to preach. You've seen how I dress. Flip-flops and overalls, that's my routine. But I'm not going to do that here. I'm ministering before you. And that is a personal standard of mine to wear a tie. And so far, a coat, I've never taken my coat off. I know some of you are like, man, quit complaining about the heat, just take your coat off. For right now, it's just a personal conviction of mine, personal standard. I, God just put a lot of emphasis on the high priest, and that's what I do. Um, maybe the day will come, I'll throw this thing off, and we can turn off the air conditioner. But um, I, just haven't, I just haven't gotten to that point yet. And, um, but I don't wear this all the time. But this, to me, is serious business. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm trying to say tonight? So don't get mad that I've issued a standard for preaching and teaching and singing and playing an instrument. I'm not trying to get you ruffled up. I just want to do our best to honor our king in the office that we represent. And I want people who come in here to know that we're serious about what we're doing. And and I'll go ahead and get on this hobby horse while I'm here, or as, what's his head said, his pony, Brother (laughs) Loddick. Listen, we we ought to get up here and reflect a difference between masculinity and femininity. Uh, Why? Because we live in that day and age. I don't want men getting up here with their necklaces and earrings and their bling. Let the women wear that certainly not going to let a man get up here in his dress. Well, we better just, um, I just think we need to show a certain, um, I want to show the lady that's struggling hard in sin that there is a purity out there. I want to show the man that's struggling that there is something serious taking place here. Um, And so if you're on staff here, or you're in a leadership position here, I hope you are taking this issue seriously because people are watching you. And I want you to lead by example. Some of you may be wondering, are you going to get controversial and tell us what you think a man and a woman ought to be wearing? No. I'm not. I'm going to leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. But I'll caution you. If you have to go back to the Greek to prove your standard, be careful how hard you push that on others because it may not be a very convincing argument. Go with what is clearly laid out in the Bible. There's a lot more I was going to say, but I hit delete. Aren't you glad? I'll leave this topic alone by saying this. Your clothing conveys your heart's condition to some extent. Now listen, I've known women that wore dresses a certain length and carried their King James Bible and they slept around. So I'm not saying this is the indicator. Don't put that into my mouth. That's not what I'm saying. But it does say something. It makes a statement about the disposition of our heart and our approach to one another. Um, So our clothing does make a statement. That's all I'm saying. Esther, she's trying to make a statement by going in before the king with her royal apparel. She's in public and she wants to come before him seriously. She wants to make a good impression when he lays his eyes upon her. He wants that. She wants that to be a positive one in his eyes. And so she puts on her royal apparel. And sure enough, in verse 2 we read, And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And in this we once again see God's providence. Because God takes the heart of the king and He turns it whithersoever he will it was the custom in Persia that she was not allowed to go before him unbidden that was the law and yet she, she she goes before the king anyhow if I perish I perish and she goes before the king and God turned his heart he hadn't called for her in 30 days and he Extends the golden scepter. This means that the king was willing to receive her into his presence without the punishment of the law. I hope that rings a bell for you spiritually. And then she drew near and she touched the top of the scepter, which shows she was submitting herself to him as a humble petitioner. And in verse 3 we read, then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. In these first three verses of chapter 5, I'll close with this. We see Christ in a couple of ways. One, we, we see once we are in Christ, we are arrayed in our royal apparel. And it's His royal apparel because it is the robe of His righteousness. And when He sees us arrayed in the righteousness of Christ, we obtain favor in His sight. And we are accepted before God. What a thought. You see, the law cries out against us for death. But Christ fulfilled the law. He took the penalty of the law for us, and now we can appear before His presence without fear of the law of sin, which requires death, all because... He paid the penalty for us. And as His bride, we are always granted access into His presence. Amen. Once we come into His presence by faith, we are told in Matthew 21, 22, "...and all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive." 1 John five fourteen and 15, and this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will... He heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And i got to hurry here. But the other way that we see Christ here is by contrast. This is the approach of Matthew Henry. He observed the following, quote, Esther came to a proud, imperious man. We come to the God of love and grace. She was not called. We are. The Spirit says come and the bride says come. She had a law against her. We have a promise, many a promise in favor of us. Ask and it shall be given you. She had no friend to introduce her or intercede for her. While on the contrary, he that was then the king's favorite was her enemy, speaking of Haman. But we have an advocate with the Father in whom he is well pleased. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. And I would add this. That while Ahasuerus said to Esther, It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. Our king said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Romans 8, 16 and 17, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. And in all of that, it reminded me of Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it shall be given, you seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he will ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, Know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good good things to them that ask Him? (laughs) I love that passage. What a great God and King we serve. We don't have to fear entering His presence. We've been clothed in His royal apparel, His righteousness through salvation. We don't have to worry about being accepted. We have been made accepted in the Beloved. We don't have to worry about bringing our petitions before Him. He wants to hear from us. Our God is so good to us. Therefore, as Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what are you going through tonight? Go to God in prayer. And then move into action when He says it's time.